Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. With the federal election just around the corner, in a matter of weeks, we're going to continue our investigation into the sometimes murky world of political communication. This week, a look at lobby groups. We see their spokespeople quoted in the newspapers and see their ads on television. But beyond that, we tend to know very little about how Australia's lobby groups get what they want. Someone who does know a fair bit about Australia's lobby groups and what they want and how they operate in the world of political communication is our special guest, George Rennie. He looks he lectures in politics at the University of Melbourne, and George's research includes U.S. politics, the landscapes of lobbying, campaigning and advocacy, and political advertising. Thanks for being on Communication Mixdown, George. It's a pleasure. Now, you've observed over the last 20 years, lobbying activities in Australia have expanded rather dramatically. Set the scene for us. What's happened in that time? Well, there's been a lot of money that's been going into uh, lobbying generally. So, look, that's a big area. There's, um, there's what we call, I guess you could call it on the books or professional lobbying. And it just, just to speak at the federal level, um, that's um, something that's uh, very poorly regulated by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and the Prime Minister's Office. Um, there's a thing called the Lobbying Code and there's also a thing called the Ministerial Statement. My take is they're really poor. They're not worth the paper they're written on, mm. to use the common phrase. Um, but there are those professional lobbyists who are third-party lobbyists who are paid by usually um, someone who, well, always, by someone who wants something from government. But the problem right away is it's people who can afford to pay them and the lobbyists with the best access are the ones that have, uh, are the ones who garner the biggest paychecks and therefore the people who employ them are the ones with the most money. Mm. You immediately run into a problem there. But to return to the question, I know I'm getting ahead of uh, things a little bit here, but to return to the question, the, um, the sheer number of lobbyists has been increasing quite dramatically, sort of following the US lead. Mm. Um, the amount of money spent on it is dramatically increasing. The amount of money spent on trying to convince the public to do things in a way that um, uh, particularly very big businesses want, uh, 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 that, sorry, I should say, that align with what big businesses want, the amount of money spent on that has been increasing. And there's a lot of evidence that shows the effectiveness of that, of those lobbying efforts is, is uh, significant. Mm. That, that people who are able to pay the most get disproportionate access to our democracy. Um, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, a big problem and it's a growing problem. We're going to come back to that. In fact, that's something that I wanted to talk to you about in a little bit more detail. But just to go back to what you were talking about just earlier, 
you make a distinction between what what you call the official lobbyists and what you've called the interest parties. What's the difference between those two things? And could you give us a couple of examples to illustrate what what you mean? Sure. Um, look, I, I mean, to, to, you have to return to the intent of or the ideal of democracy. And I think that there's two good answers in terms of what democracy should be or needs to be uh, for it to work well. One is just the demos part, the people, that the people should have the say. Um, But the other is this idea of what we call the marketplace of ideas. Um, This this, this rather noble idea that you have this range of ideas that need to be heard for a democracy to work. Um, And what we're seeing is that that marketplace is is not uh, is not dominated by those with necessarily the best ideas, but those with most money. Mm-hmm. And the demos part, the democracy part, or the fundamental of democracy, the demos part, the people part, that too is not being uh, properly reflected. So rather than the majority getting its way on a lot of issues, a disproportionately small group get their way significantly more. Um, the US is a great example of that. There are a lot of uh, very good studies that show very conclusively, very, very conclusively, that um, minority groups, uh, sorry, I say minority groups, wrong word, that the wealthy elite essentially. Mm. Um, are able to get their way far more often, even when their views conflict with the vast majority of the population, mm. especially on economic issues. And yeah. and so in terms of the issue of professional lobbyists versus what you might call interest groups, well, all groups are interest groups. All, so I, I should say, political groups are interest groups. So you might have a corporate lo- interest group, corporate corporate lobby. Um, that corporate lobby is far more likely to get its way if it's big, if it has a lot of money and it can spend enough than other interest groups. I mean, the, the last time you and I spoke, we were talking about mining. And, <laughs> yes, and it was, I remember. It was this idea of you have two, let's talk about two interest groups. One is mining companies and the other is the environment. Now, this will shock you and your listeners but sometimes the interests of the mining companies is actually pitted very much against the interests of the environment. I know it's a shocking thing to say. Mm. Forgive me. Um, I don't want to cause any heart attacks. <laughs> but um, what we what we find is that the environment basically doesn't have a voice. I know that there are a lot of um, you know, very there are a lot of groups that devote huge amounts of time and human resources, you know, people resources, Mm. to fighting for an idea. And time and time again, they don't get their way, Mm. even when they actually have the popular support. And they lose out because of lobbying. I mean, lobbying is, you you know, as a political scientist, to focus on the science part, there's always a danger of, of mistaking correlation for causation. Mm. 
But what we see is that the correlation between your ability to pay and access and getting away is significant. Mm. And uh, Sorry, and I'm just going to come back to that thing about the official lobbyists. So the official lobbyists, is, as, you've, as being described by you, they, they are... Are, are they? Is there a register of of, of official lobbyists that that companies b- sign up to, or how does that actually work? Yes, there is a, a there is a, an official register. You have to um, if you, again, if you're a third party, so you're a professional lobbyist who's paid and you're not working for the company directly, then you have to be on the register of lobbyists. Mm. Supposedly, I mean, I you know, I have to temper these. Uh, this statement, because that's how it's meant to work. You're meant to join up, and they're um, and they're the professional. They're the the, the term I use it for official. Um, they're the official lobbyists. Um, but the truth is, anyone who wants anything from government is a lobbyist. Yes, I mean, or, or, you know, I should say, anyone who wants anything from government and is willing to go to government is lobbying government. Um, it's just that those professional lobbyists are disproportionately paid for and again it's this issue of the the you know the, the term would be I'm tempted to say the best lobbyists mm. in the sense that the most the most effective lobbyists mm. are the ones typically and it's very uh, it's very common mm. that the best lobbyists or the most effective lobbyists are the ones who are paid the most and again that's the, yes. there's that problem of money and access yes, pay yes. to play Yes, yes, and you have me- i mean you have talked about the the money aspect of it, and sometimes there's lots and lots of money involved. I'm just wondering just again to sort of set the scene, who are some of the biggest players in Australia who would be paying lobbyists these third parties to do their bidding? Any group that wants a contract pay the most they're the ones that have the most lobbyists they're the ones that get the most access. So there's, um, there's a very neat correlation between uh, groups that, uh, I guess you could say there's two, two basic groups. One is that have the most to lose from a policy. So the mining company, uh, if, if, for instance, if we, if we introduced the mining tax, uh, the, 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 the resource rent tax back mm-hmm. in 2010, that's something they don't want government to do. And so mining companies pay a tremendous amount of money and devoted a tremendous amount of resources towards public and private lobbying to convince politicians, decision makers generally, and the public that we shouldn't make things worse for them, mm. that we shouldn't change things that mean that they lose money, mm. Mm. even if that means that maybe the country makes more money or the environment, say, benefits. Mm. Mm. So that's, one, that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's the groups that have the most to gain from government decisions. And they, in particular, spend just tremendous amounts of money, hundreds of you know, individually they might spend millions and millions of dollars as a corporation, I say individually, but collectively they spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year just on greasing the wheels of government. And what you see is, uh, you know, they get their way uh, disproportionately. They, they, the, the companies that spend the most money on lobbying. Mm. Tend to be the ones that spend that, that get the best contract. Now, when you say uh, some examples, um, so the Minerals Council is a good example of a company, of a, of a, sorry, a, 
a peak body that represents the mining companies who spends a, a huge amount of money. Mm. Um, the Business Council of Australia, again, mm. has a huge amount of money to spend, um, but also individual corporations. So... Yes, I'm thinking of uh, just just to come in here. I'm just I'm thinking as you're speaking about the private health industries, for example, or the insurance industries. Um, they would have a lot of a lot of profit, I suppose that 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 would rely on government policies. That's right. The big one in Australia is actually defence. Um, defence spends um, individual defence companies, most of which are based overseas. Um, spend a lot of money and they, they, they're very successful. At least, again, there's that, uh, to use that term again, the correlation of success. You know. um, um, we're, not as, we're not quite as beholden to uh, healthcare and pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies as the United States is. Yes. Uh, there, in the US, that is, pharmaceutical companies and healthcare generally mm. are probably the most powerful lobby. Um, they're more defence. People often talk about oil and gas, but healthcare is amazingly, amazingly mm. powerful. You said um, de- you've said defence is is important in Australia. Is it, is that right? Yeah. Is that what you're? T- yeah, they spend huge amounts of money. Uh, tell us how that. Can you t- can you talk about that? Yeah. Or, 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 how does that work? Or who, where, who are they paying, and and uh, who are the lobbyists for the defence industry? Well, there's a number. I mean, so we're running into complications already and explaining it might be difficult. But oh, okay. There's two basic... Well, I could try. I could try, I could try. Give me one second. There's, there's two, two basic means. So one is they spend a lot of money on lobbyists themselves. So that is people meeting with ministers. But the reason is, of course, because um, defence contracts are worth uh, very, very large amounts of money. Mm. And so if you can get a minister to give you such a contract... Um, you know, the profits are in the billions, not just the revenues. Um, uh, but the other way is there's a thing called the revolving door, um, which is something that I'm particularly interested in. And I think that we we underestimate how important it is in terms of the, the art of convincing people. Or, or, let me start again. We underestimate how important it is in terms of how the biasing effect. Mm. In a nutshell, the revolving door is just this. It, re- it reflects a phenomena where a phenomenon where wherein we have people leaving business positions to go into government, people leaving government positions to go into business. Now, if you focus on the government going into business, so a former minister, for instance, taking up a role as a senior. In, in a in a defence contractor that pays quite a bit of money, then you could see how that might have a biasing effect, which is there's the potential that they're going to get a very big paycheck when they leave office. And you can also see how that biasing effect could, and, and you know, I have to be wary of our very stringent defamation laws, so I won't give specific examples. No, no I'm, I'm, but, I'm concerned about that, George. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, you don't, you, I'm, I'm well used to it, trust me. You know, you know. Okay. Um, so I won't give specific examples, but you can see how that could have that biasing effect hmm. in terms of uh, a minister or someone, <clears throat> the chief of staff, say, or someone very senior within the procurement process knows that they're going to get a job that pays, say, $500,000 a year or whatever. And, and, and that's very common. It's 250000 500000 sometimes a million, sometimes more. Um, 
uh, they know that they're going to get that job when they leave office. And and just the basic psychology is that that can bias them too. So there's the direct lobbying, which is wherein you know you have um, former ministers who are lobbyists and former chief of staff and former people who have contact, people mm. who have relationships, going and meeting the the current crop of ministers, decision makers. That's one issue. And then there's the revolving door, which is another. And both of those have significant biasing effects in terms of how we spend our public funds. George, um, George, I'm thinking maybe this might be a good time to take just take a little break, give you uh, a bit of a breather, and uh, we'll come back with some more on uh, lobbying and uh, political communication. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary, the 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Biraranga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations, and even virtual reality. Now, head to www.biraranga.world. That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-G-A.world. And book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. With the federal election just around the corner, this week on Communication Mixdown, we're discussing the role of lobby groups and their connection with various forms of political communication. Our special guest is George Rennie. He lectures in politics at Melbourne University and researches lobbying activities and political advertising campaigns in Australia and the United States. George, thanks very much for your time. And something else that I wanted to ask you about was You've, you've written that lobbying consists of a range of strategies designed to co-opt and realign policy, and I'm quoting you from, from a piece that you wrote, and these strategies attempt to influence two key targets. One of them is government, and that includes regulators and the public. And I think this is where important aspects of communication come into play. This is me sort of imposing my perspective on this, but the election's coming up very shortly. Can you cite a couple of recent examples that use particular strategies employed by lobby groups to influence public opinion? Um, Look, the big example was the mining tax. Um, And then after that, there was, uh, uh, in terms of really big examples that people might know, there was the um, there was essentially a pokies campaign. Mm. So that was back in 2012. Typically speaking, beyond that, what you get in Australia is more of a... And I'm happy to talk about either of those as, as, as examples that, that listeners will know well. Uh, what you typically get in Australia is more, is more in terms of... Um, PR, essentially, public relations from peak bodies like the Minerals Council, uh, the Business Council of Australia, um, uh, various groups that represent property developers or real estate agents and things like that. Um, and what they tend to... And, and, and of course, and of course um, I guess a, a recent example would be the bankers. Um, so um, mm. the peak banking bodies um, and just the banks themselves. Uh, so they'll typically engage in public relations exercises and they'll put out um, press releases, which certain elements of the press are very happy to take up 
sometimes verbatim in terms of they'll copy-paste or nearly copy-paste the wording of those press releases. Um, and and but, but more importantly, they'll put out ideas that certain elements of the press will be all too happy to uh, propagate, let's say. And so it'll be something like, to use the banking example, mm. all right, banks may sometimes do the wrong thing, is what they will say. Banks may sometimes do the wrong thing, but if we, excuse me, if we um, regulate banks and if we hurt banks and if we fine banks, then that's going to affect the cost of doing business with banks. It's going to affect their ability to give loans. It's going to, and importantly, it's going to affect their share price. And they'll play on the idea that, you know, quote unquote, everyone has shares in, in the banks, or nearly everyone, if only because of superannuation or what have you. And so what it does is it creates this fear that if we change anything, that if we, that if we regulate more stringently, that we're going to lose. And that is a really powerful idea, and it's what all of those groups do, the ones that I mentioned and many mm. more that I mm. haven't. Because we know in terms of the basic psychology of political communications that fear is very effective. It plays into what's called status quo bias, wherein, generally speaking, we're afraid of change. We don't like... We, we, we actually become used to the norm. Um, and if you think about that, in terms of what that really means, if we, if we don't like change or we're afraid of change, we're afraid of the unknown, is, is really the, the deep psychological issue, then what that means is you can have lobbying behind the scenes wherein, say, to use the example of the banks, the banks are able to lobby, um, lobby government to get their way behind the scenes in a way that the people aren't aware of, that, 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 mm. means that, that it's very anti-democratic. But then as soon as something becomes big and it becomes an issue that people are worried about, you know, such as the misbehaviour of banks during mm. that was exposed during the Banking Royal Commission, that frankly was exposed numerous times before the Banking Royal Commission, that was you know given prominence during it and immediately after it. Um, so all that stuff has happened beforehand. All the things that favour the banks have happened beforehand because of that behind the scenes lobbying, and then public lobbying kicks in, public communication, political communication mm. kicks in which instills that fear that, that means that we lock down and we go, well, let's not change anything. Mm. Not realising that change has been a constant, that change is a constant. And a lot has happened, but the things that have happened have been favouring the, the lobbyists, favouring favoring rather um, the banks in this case, and that actually any change would be to redress the problems that came with the... the the, the initial changes. Um, so, so in other words, it, it's having their cake and getting mm, eating it too mm, mm. in terms of the public aspect of lobbying and what they, they're able to do. We're just about out of time, George, but there's a couple of really in, in interesting issues that I, I, was, uh, I was wanting to ask you about. One of them was in terms of lobby groups in Australia and how they work and how much how much they're influenced by overseas 
uh, uh, trends, particularly from the United States, and I'm thinking here about the Australian gun lobby and their campaign to, uh, which, which, as I understand it, pretty much went under the radar until that Al Jazeera coverage of one nation going to the United States and meeting with the NRA, the National Rifle Association. Is there a lot of crossover between um, American lobbying practice and Australian lobbying practice? Yes, there is a lot. Um, for a little while, there was a group called CIFA, the, um, which, which was running a campaign uh, that was quite similar to some of the US tactics in terms of the NRA. They've since changed, but there are many groups that are agitating for a weakening of gun laws in Australia, and they absolutely do use the tactics of the NRA. I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, one is if you go to a shooting range, there's a like let, let's say that is sometimes what shooting ranges in Australia will do is they'll offer uh, group uh, discounts and it'll be like a party thing. You go to the shooting range and it's like sport. You shoot at targets and things like that. So you go there for a birthday party or go there with friends. And something that's very common is that people who are there. Uh, that is your helper, you know, the person who's there to talk you through the basic safety issues, handling the gun, etc., will, 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 in between talking about how to shoot the gun and, and the safety issues and what you need to do at the range, they'll talk about this idea that gun laws in Australia haven't worked, that they're actually making crime worse, that it's stupid will be something that, mm. that they'll sometimes say, things like that. Now, that, that, and so, in other words, that's, that's a very basic NRA tactic. It's the misdirection and misinformation tactic. Mm. None of it's true. Gun laws have been, the gun laws in Australia have been tremendously successful, but they can be quite convincing. You know, they've got you one-on-one. Um, there are other groups that will try to do it. And what, what you also see is you see some ads in some states. Mm. But I think, I think just to give quickly one other example, the most powerful thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to get some groups, such as One Nation, such as the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, into, into our various state and federal parliaments and trying to get them in a position where they have the balance of power and they can use that to leverage more incrementally, incrementally leverage um, a, a, a reduction or a weakening of our gun laws. Mm. And that's a classic NRA tactic. Use the legislature. Mm. You know, if the people don't like it, go behind the scenes. If the people can be convinced, convince the people. You always get this mixed approach, and that's absolutely what they do. George, we're going to have to finish up there. I'm, 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 unfortunately, I, there's so many other things that I was hoping to ask you, but we'll, we'll, we'll chat to you again for sure. So I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown and for your insights tonight. It was a pleasure. Great to, have, great to be on. Thank you. And I've been talking with our special guest this week, George Rennie. He lectures in politics at the University of Melbourne, and his research includes U.S. politics, the functions of lobbying, and political and advocacy advertising. And the links to some of George's writing and a podcast of this show will be available on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back again next Monday at 6 o'clock. 
Let's go out with Barrett Strong and what could be the theme song for those big mainstream lobby groups working for the power elites in Australia. you 